Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, I'll talk with an attorney from the Freedom From Religion Foundation. That's a Wisconsin-based organization that tackles church-state separation issues, such as prayers in school or Ten Commandment displays and the like. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS-10TV, Tracy Townsend presents information about a fight over the language Ohioans will see on an abortion rights amendment to be voted on in November. The billions of dollars in business development happening in central Ohio and absentee rates in area school districts and what's being done to improve the situation. And in about 45 minutes, I'll talk with the manager of a free pop-up medical, vision, and dental clinic that's coming to Columbus September 23rd and 24th. First up on Columbus Perspective, on the phone with me is Sammy Lawrence, who is an attorney for the Freedom From Religion Foundation based in Madison, Wisconsin. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us what the Freedom From Religion Foundation is. So we are a nonprofit organization based out of Madison, Wisconsin, and our general purposes are to support the separation of state and church and to educate the public on matters of non-theism. Okay, and uh, a lot of people probably are familiar with, uh, at least they read articles where your organization comes up from time to time, and occasionally it happens in Ohio, and it happened recently involving New Regal Schools in Northwest Ohio, it's uh, roughly between Tiffin and Finley, Ohio, it had to do with graduation ceremonies at New Regal. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, we received a complaint from a community member in that school district saying that their um, commencement ceremony for New Regal High School included a religious invocation so basically a student speaker got up as part of the ceremony and gave a christian prayer and asked the audience to participate in the prayer and we wrote to the superintendent of that district and just kind of explained how including prayers is unconstitutional and also just unnecessary and problematic from a policy standpoint as well Okay. And so oftentimes when you send these notices to schools, they kind of mull it over. Maybe the school board takes up uh, the topic and then it's kind of up to them to decide whether or not to comply or maybe get into litigation with you, right? Correct. And and it's interesting, too, I think, because (laughs) it makes your, your organization loved and reviled at the same time by different groups of people. Yeah, definitely. That does make it uh, interesting a lot of the time. Just from a legal standpoint, then, talk about uh, this issue and and what's wrong with it. Well, the Constitution, First Amendment, um, part of that is the religion clauses, including the Establishment Clause. And the principle of the separation of state and church is baked into that. And constitutionally, the Supreme Court has specifically said that a public high school can't include prayers at its graduation ceremony. That violates the First Amendment rights of students um, participating in that graduation ceremony because it shows that, A, the government is taking a side in religion. The public school district is saying we support Christianity, that's our preferred religion, we're going to have this Christian prayer at our graduation ceremony. But also it's coercive, because all of the students there and their families have to sit through and observe the 
participate. And in this case, the speaker asked the audience to participate in the prayer. So in a situation like that, then, if, and rather than if it's a, in a, a setting where people might be able to come and go or get away from what you're doing, in this sense, you've kind of got a captive audience and that's part of the problem? Yeah, that's definitely part of the problem in really any school setting, especially, is students are expected to be in the school. They generally are expected to participate in things like graduation ceremonies. Yeah, you it's technically not mandatory. You won't, you know, be failed out of school if you don't go to it, but it's a really big part of high school and graduating is attending. Students generally want to go, and it's unconstitutional and just really unfair to make students choose between having to not go to the ceremony, get up and awkwardly try to leave the room and come back, um, or just sitting through a religious activity that they do not believe in in order to participate in their public high school graduation. Now, there's been some big fights over the years, including here in Ohio, I think maybe 15, 20 years ago, there was a big one uh, involving athletic coaches and conducting prayers before games or on the field, that type of thing. And I think the Supreme Court actually just ruled on one recently, didn't they? Uh, Yes, that's the Kennedy uh, versus Bremerton School District decision. That was the most recent Supreme Court one. Okay, so what uh, what's going on with those types of issues these days? Well, we still receive a lot of complaints about coaches um, leading students in prayer, encouraging students to pray um, either during games, after games, as part of um, athletic practices, etc. And our stance is that the Kennedy case from the Supreme Court really didn't change the law all that much because all that case says is that a high school athletics coach can pray privately and silently on his own time when he is not acting as a coach. And that's basically always been the law. Um, A teacher, coach, or any public employee generally can privately pray to themselves uh, at any time, especially when they're not acting um, officially. So our what we argue um, and continue to argue when we get these complaints is that it is still unconstitutional for a public school's football coach or any athletic coach to lead students in prayer, try to encourage students to pray themselves, take students to events, to um, church services, which is something that we get complaints about occasionally. That still all violates students' First Amendment rights. Talking with Sammy Lawrence, she's an attorney for the Freedom From Religion Foundation based in Madison, Wisconsin. The moves lately by the Supreme Court and its move toward becoming more conservative in recent years, more conservative justices, does that have your organization concerned about what might happen with future rulings? Yes, definitely. Unfortunately, the trend has been for the Supreme Court to pretty blatantly favor um, religious, particularly Christian plaintiffs. At this point, the court is pretty much willing to 
almost always rule in favor of a Christian plaintiff, even if the law arguably says that they shouldn't. And that's really concerning to us. And I take it with your organization, there's a big difference between invoking God and invoking Christ. Um, arguably, yes. We, we argue that um, the government, public schools, um, basically just be completely secular because there's no need for the government to involve itself in religion. Uh, we argue that that is unconstitutional, and also from a policy standpoint, do we really want the government taking sides at any level and saying this religion is the best religion, this is the one that we like as the government and that we're going to support? Um, no. We recognize that a lot of religions have, obviously, have a concept of God or some higher power, so occasionally we will get the argument and we understand that, well, if someone's just very vaguely referencing God or a higher power, yes, maybe they're not specifically favoring or referencing Christianity, but that would still be showing government preference and support for religion over non-religion, and that still violates the Constitution, because the government is supposed to be completely neutral. So does that kind of line of uh, thinking or argument, is that why coins still say, in God we trust on them? So that was the Supreme Court's uh, basically line of argument many decades ago when it decided that and God we trust does not violate the Establishment Clause. We still argue that in God we trust is not an appropriate national motto and that we as a country would be better off adopting our original national motto, which was e pluribus unum from many one. Because that's a completely secular motto with a much better message that doesn't invoke a concept of a deity. What about state legislatures uh, and Congress? I mean, prayers on the floor of government bodies are not unusual at all. Are those a problem? Well, similarly to In God We Trust, the Supreme Court has held that prayers, um, generally speaking, prayers as part of government um, proceedings, like opening up meetings and stuff, are not per se unconstitutional, especially um, the example of Congress is that it's been happening so long, um, almost since the founding of our country, that it's just tradition and there's not really a religious purpose behind it. When government entities, especially local school boards, have prayer practices, and especially when they start new prayer practices, we still argue that that's A, unconstitutional, and B, um, unnecessarily divisive for their communities, because once again, it's still the government taking a side and publicly favoring one religion over others. And that is problematic legally and also sends a really exclusionary message to 
students to community members to people participating in their local government. Participation in church has been declining over the last uh, few decades. The number of people who identify themselves as atheist or agnostic has been increasing steadily. Does that have any influence on your organization and, and the direction or the, you know, I guess the aggressiveness that you take? It does definitely influence our strategies and our outlook for the future, especially the routes that we take in educating the public. A lot of our in-house education efforts have really gone towards educating public school students, for example, and launching a Know Your Rights campaign for public school students because statistically uh, non-religion is really on the rise in younger generations in Gen Z. Uh, they're the least religious generation so far. And a lot of our complaints are coming from either parents of young children who are in the public school system or students themselves who are really upset that their school district, school board, teachers are pushing religion, uh, most often Christianity, on students and violating their rights. Talking with Sammy Lawrence, she's an attorney for the Freedom From Religion Foundation. What about nativity scenes on, uh, you know, courthouse lawns and that kind of thing? That is a area that is complicated because of Supreme Court precedent, but we do receive many complaints every holiday season about nativity scenes on public property, whether one is unconstitutional or not really depends on the situation and the specific facts, so it's hard to just give a blanket answer. But we do argue that they are problematic if, depending on the facts, we'll argue that they're constitutional, that they are unconstitutional. Um, and even if they are technical, technically legal, once again, we still argue that, you know, it's unnecessary. You know, why does the courthouse have to be putting up a nativity scene? It doesn't. The county courthouse really doesn't have to take a stance on which religion's holidays are the best or worth celebrating or worth putting public funds into celebrating. And that's the argument that we would make to them. When you do end up in court uh, legal action with uh, various uh, organizations or, or school districts or whatever they are, are those always federal cases or do they sometimes land in state court or what? They are often federal cases, but we do sometimes take cases in state court. Uh, for example, we currently have a lawsuit in state court in South Carolina right now, so it is mixed. So even when they're in federal court, though, then do you, are there just different areas of the country where the approach is different and where the resistance is different? Yeah, definitely. Every um, federal circuit is different. The case law is different from circuit to circuit. The judges are different, and we definitely consider all those differences um, in developing our strategy for any given case. 
What do you think is the biggest uh, misconception that people have either about your organization or just about state religious issues? I think that the biggest misconception is that our organization and others that fight for the separation of state and church are are anti-religious liberty or that we want to oppress religious people or take religious people's rights away, and that is not the case at all. We just want everyone's rights to be respected and to essentially be equal. That's why... You know, we're the Freedom From Religion Foundation, because freedom of religion also means freedom from religion. We think that being religious should not give someone the right to violate another person's rights. That's all. We don't think that religious liberty is a bad thing. It's certainly not. It's a fundamental principle of our country, and everyone should be free to believe and think what they want and to practice their religion or to not practice a religion in whichever way works for them and that they see fit. They just shouldn't be allowed to let that religious belief, whatever it be, intrude upon the rights and lives of others. I wanted to ask, too, then, uh, about the Ten Commandments. It it seems like uh, some of the arguments about that are that, you know, the, the Ten Commandments don't even have to be... Uh, looked at in a religious manner. There's there's just a lot of do's and uh, don'ts on there that, that just make sense for society in general that don't even have to have a religious connection. Is that part of the argument in defense of those? That is the argument that people make in defense to that. However, we respond that that's really not true. Um, the Ten Commandments, no matter what version you're looking at, contains just plainly religious commandments, like you shall have no God other than me. Um, you shall not work on the Sabbath day, for example. And those are not secular. Those are just, you know, straight-up religious rules that are not appropriate for public schools or for courthouses or for government in general to be promoting. And there's also the issue that the Ten Commandments do vary from sect to sect. The version of the Ten Commandments that's often taught in Catholic schools, for example, is different from the version of the Ten Commandments that you know, Lutherans or Methodists or other sects often teach. So it's another issue as well of the government essentially picking a version of this religion idea, of this religious idea and teaching that they like the best and then promoting that specific version, which is choosing a favorite. And that's the opposite of what the government is supposed to be doing. And those cases can go either way sometimes in court, from what I remember. Is that right? Yes, that's correct, because like a lot of things, it's very fact-specific. And there are instances where courts have found that a Ten Commandments being displayed um, alongside many other documents uh, that have influenced law or philosophy, for example, is fine but usually a Ten Commandments display all by itself with no other context is typically unconstitutional. What about people who would say, you know, 
prayers in schools, that was a better time. There was less violence. Uh, you know, uh, people got along better. Uh, since we've gotten away from that, we can see how society is going downhill. Maybe uh, even if we have to allow other religions in our schools, as long as we can get Christianity back into it, what's wrong with it? Well, the first thing that's wrong with prayers in schools is that is just blatantly unconstitutional. A public school cannot encourage students to pray or force students to pray. But that's not to say that students cannot by themselves pray. That's always been true. A student can, of their own volition, privately pray throughout the school day, that's perfectly fine, but a public school can't make you or encourage you to do that. And also statistically, I'm not quite sure that that's true, that we have more violence and more issues today than we did um, back in the 40s or 50s. Arguably, that's not the case, and that's a very broad assertion to make. Uh, Additionally, There have always been students and families who aren't Christian, whether they're atheists, agnostics, or just minority religions. And I think if you go back and look at interviews from people like uh, Vashi McCollum, the mother in the famous uh, McCollum v. Board of Education case that, you know, allegedly took religion out of public schools, She talks about how their family was treated extremely harshly for being openly atheist and their children were subject to actually a lot of bullying and violence for being openly atheist in an extremely religious small town back in the 40s and 50s. So I don't think that everyone would actually agree that things were better back then. Interesting. Uh, Sammy Lawrence joining us. She's an attorney for the Freedom From Religion Foundation based in Madison, Wisconsin. Anything else you'd like to add? Uh, If I could add anything else, I think it would be that, unfortunately, in these arguments about state church separation, the one thing that often gets lost is the students. Uh, It becomes an argument about the school board or the teachers or the school district or whatever other government entity is involved. But people really lose sight of the fact that at the end of the day, the rights of students are being harmed and their experience in the public school system is really being affected negatively. And students are, you know, they're the future of our country, and they're the people that we should be prioritizing in all of this. Uh, Sammy, if folks want more information about your organization, where do they find it online? They can find us at ffrf.org. Great. Sammy Lawrence, again, an attorney for the Freedom From Religion Foundation. Very interesting. Thanks so much for your time and the information today. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Tracy Townsend from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Again, this morning with the fight over abortion in Ohio, the ballot board is facing a lawsuit over the language in the amendment. 
Thanks so much for joining us this morning for Face the State. I'm Tracy Townsend. It's language you could see when you vote in November. The lawsuit was filed by Ohioans United for Reproductive Rights and five petitioners who had submitted the original ballot language, calling the board summary a naked attempt to mislead. It's a 137-page lawsuit, which argues the ballot board's approved language is irreparably flawed and asks the court to direct the ballot board to reconvene. What does the language look like? 10TV's Lindsay Mills is breaking down what was approved. The summary language approved by the Ohio Ballot Board was developed by Republican Secretary of State Frank LaRose, an abortion opponent. The entire summary is written as anti-abortion propaganda. Lauren Blavelt, co-chair of Ohioans United for Reproductive Rights, says voters deserve to see the entire summary. She also notes this. Republican Attorney General Dave Yost certified the group's original wording as fair and accurate. 700,000 Ohioans read it when they signed petitions to get the measure on the fall ballot. Meanwhile, Mike Gonadakis, president of Ohio Right to Life, says the language does a better job than the original at conveying the sweep of the abortion amendment's reach. You know, they didn't use terminology that I use on the stump, and they didn't use terminology that Planned Parenthood used on the stump. They used legal, uh, justifiable uh, words. Unborn child is, in, is actually defined in the Ohio Revised Code, so they inserted it into this language. So I think it's fair and accurate. Let's compare the original amendment proposal to the summary that was certified. Democrats proposed using the word fetus. The proposal was changed to unborn child in the ballot measure. The original summary language which seeks to assure access to abortion through what is called viability when the fetus is able to survive outside the womb. It stated abortion may be prohibited after fetal viability, but not in cases where a treating physician deems the procedure necessary to protect the life or health of the pregnant person. It now says the amendment would, quote, always allow an unborn child to be aborted at any stage of pregnancy, regardless of viability, if, in the treating physician's determination, the life and health exception applies. LaRose has said the full text of the amendment will be available at polling locations and published in newspapers. Lindsay Mills, 10 TV News. A simple majority will be needed to pass the abortion measure this November. You will also see issue two, which is the proposal to legalize recreational marijuana. If approved, it will legalize, regulate, and tax marijuana used by adults. The measure needs a simple majority to pass and would become effective 30 days after the election. Lawmakers have to once again take on a major voting assignment. It focuses on determining who will represent you at the State House. Ohio's redistricting commission is scheduled to meet to redraw 99 House districts and 33 Senate districts. You'll, of course, remember the Ohio Supreme Court found the last five versions adopted by Republicans on the commission unconstitutional, ruling they favored the Republican Party. I talked this week with the League of Women Voters about this social media campaign, perhaps you've seen it, urging action to redraw the maps to meet or beat a September 22nd deadline. Perhaps the sixth time is the charm. <laughs> I mean, it is my sincere hope that um, the redistricting commission will do right by the people of Ohio. Again, it's not that hard. We had everyday Ohioans submit maps that fairly represented uh, various communities. And where you would have seen where about 54 percent of the seats went Republican, as well as about 54 matching that 54 percent of the votes going Republican. This isn't about Republican or Democrat. If you are a Republican voter in the state of Ohio, you are 
harmed by these maps. Why? Because if I'm a politician and I know I can win my seat no matter what, I don't have to listen to you. I can play to party extremes. I can play to deep pocketed donors. I don't have to worry about the everyday voter because you're not going to be able to vote me out. Governor DeWine, who's on that seven-member commission, will reconvene the first meeting September 13th, since four of the members are different from those two years ago. The governor took a look at how buses are inspected in the state. The governor visited a district outside of Menor, Ohio, to see how this inspection process takes place. A state lawmaker reintroduced a bill to require seatbelts on school buses statewide, citing the need following that crash involving a school bus that killed an 11-year-old near Springfield, Ohio. Governor DeWine says all options are on the table. I'm not the expert, and I don't pretend to be, and that's why we're putting this working group together, and that's why we're asking them to bring in the best information they can. If he had a seatbelt on in that crash, he would have stayed with the bus, and he would be alive today, maybe complaining a little bit about aches and pains, but he would have been absolutely fine. Uh, But uh, because he didn't have a seatbelt, he was uh, ejected from the bus, and uh, if that happens, all bets are off. Supporters say they hope the bill for seatbelts on buses gets assigned to the Public Services Committee after the August recess. Google made a big announcement in our state. The massive tech company is continuing to invest in the data centers across the state of Ohio, this time with a $1.7 billion price tag. 10TV's Tara Jabor tells us what this investment means and how it will help those who use Google all across the world. Google is sinking more money into Ohio. The latest expansion will help Google run some of its essential services. Google's continued investment in technical infrastructure, including data centers like this one, play a critical role in supporting the company's AI innovations in our growing Google Cloud business. They help power digital services that people and businesses use every day, like Google Cloud, Gmail, Search, maps, and more. Lieutenant Governor John Houston says the investment solidifies Ohio as the tech hub of the Midwest. Construction jobs, lots of them. Jobs in HVAC, jobs in for electricians, network engineers. The work that will be done at the facilities will benefit everyone who uses Google's platform. This is where the heart of AI is. This is where all of that processing is going to occur. And so the innovation that we can undertake in education and customer service and, and, and how we can use those technologies to be leaders in improving the quality of people's lives. Google has already invested almost $2 billion in the state. Tara Jabor, 10TV News. And this investment will go toward all three data centers in the state, including New Albany, Lancaster, and Columbus. Amazon is also investing almost $8 billion in central Ohio right now. Honda is building a $3.5 billion battery factory in Fayette County, plus Intel's $20 billion chip facility in Licking County, and Microsoft just purchased 183 acres of land there as well. Lots happening. Well, small business owners met with an Ohio congressman for a roundtable about support from the federal government. Congressman Mike Carey, who represents the 15th District, and the company Shopify hosted this discussion at Dynamite Apparel in Hilliard. Ten Central Ohio business owners 
had the chance to share their concerns, challenges, and stories with Congressman Kerry to share a message with Washington. Myself and uh, the uh, small business community or across the nation is, uh, is a big uh, driver of employment, and uh, we would like them to understand that and give us the tools and uh, um, the resources for us to be able to provide you know, all the things that we need to be able to provide for our employees to keep everybody happy and compete with the, uh, the large multinational corporate organizations. Next, using AI to create curriculum. How school districts are using robots to help build a syllabus. Kids missing school over and over. It's been a big problem in school districts across Central Ohio. Next, the plan some district administrators have to crack absenteeism. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. Need to visit the Ohio BMV? Go online first. It could save you a trip. It's now easier and more convenient than ever to get what you need from the BMV online. Need to renew your driver's license? Renew online. And if you need to renew your vehicle registration, visit one of our new BMV Express kiosks or go online. Online. If you do need to visit a BMV agency, use the Get In Line online tool, also found on the website, to save your spot and minimize your time waiting. For more services available online, check out bmv.ohio.gov. You must call 811 at least two to three business days before any digging project. So before you do this or this, make sure you do this. For digging projects big or small, make the call to 811. Hey, this is Grace Gostet. I'm a singer-songwriter, and like many, I've been traumatized by years of bullying. You're ugly. You're stupid. You're gay. You're worthless. Bullying causes real harm and can result in severe long-term depression, anxiety, addiction, and even self-harm. I created the Black Box Project for anyone who has ever felt different for any reason. Go to theblackboxproject.org to help you take the first step to healing. You are not alone. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. One of the hottest topics right now is the emergence of artificial intelligence, AI, and its use in schools. It's creating opportunities, risks, and questions about its impact on creativity and critical thinking. While some schools are banning the use of AI in classrooms, one school district in Gwinnett County, Georgia, went all in, launching a curriculum that brings the technology into classrooms starting in kindergarten. Christina Ruffini has more. At Patrick Elementary, about an hour outside Atlanta, these first graders are programming Legos. Today we're going to look at this AI thinking skill, creative problem solving. More than just blocks, they're building familiarity with technology. So you're building a sequence of things you want it to do? Part of a pilot public school program trying to prepare students for the challenges and opportunities that come along with the rise of AI. Do you know what AI stands for? Yeah. What does it stand for? It stands for robotics. Close enough. It stands for artificial intelligence. They may not know what it stands for, but they already know how to use it. You just need to press this. Okay. Oh, wow. During our visit, six-year-old Olivia went beyond the lesson and figured out how to program the sensor to respond to different colors. Do you like coding? Yeah. What do you like about it? 
I like that we could build stuff and we can like do stuff that we haven't done before. It's something Gwinnett County Schools hadn't done before either. About five years ago, school administrators decided to use some of their regular annual funding to develop an AI-driven syllabus, first at a new high school, then expanding to a middle and three elementary schools. Is this a gimmick? Why is there AI in these schools? You know, AI is such a popular buzzword right now, but we've actually been doing this for a couple of years. Sally Holloway is the director of AI and computer science for the district. For us, it's thinking about what do our kids need to know and do to be ready for their future. So we're not like always messing with a robot, um, but what we are doing is teaching them how to think and solve problems with these tools. Sometimes, however, they are messing with robots. Some people code it, people help design, come up with ideas. We all just work together as a team. At Seckinger High, social studies teacher Scott Gaffney is incorporating the technology in less obvious ways. Can AI help us develop a solution? Students ask ChatGPT to analyze years of traffic data, then use the findings to help come up with solutions for safer roads. How would you have done that lesson differently five, ten years ago without this technology? That would have taken probably about four or five days. The way that these kids think, they process information so fast. So if we can give them something challenging, real time, they are very engaged with it. And by all estimates, machine learning is something these kids will have to continue to engage with once they enter the workforce. One study estimates 10% of the jobs created by the year 2030 will be in previously unknown fields. And most will see at least some level of automation. Were you influenced by AI? Down the hall in art class, students were asked to draw a sketch, then enter a description of it into an AI image generator. Overall, it didn't really help with what I wanted or what I was looking for. Debating if these computer-created works inspired them to change their original design. Using AI sometimes tells me... Sometimes it's chaos. Other times, I actually post a couple things that I can use, like certain angles of the head. But when it came to the question of artistic integrity, do you think AI art is real art? <laughs> Nobody? <laughs> AI is like, it's just taking everyone's work and just collaging it together. So technically not original. It's an ongoing debate, as the line between AI-assisted learning and outright outsourcing is still being defined. Is there a concern that these kids become much more familiar with these products that they could use it for cheating? So when I was in high school, there was this thing that came out that everyone was really upset about called Google. And they thought that that was just going to really ruin education, and it hasn't. But administrators here acknowledge there's a lot they, and all of us really, still don't know about the technology. Almost every teacher today talk about the ethics of whatever they were doing with the AI. We like to say that we lead with ethical conversations about AI. Just because we can maybe doesn't mean that we should. Helping students identify, analyze, and utilize artificial intelligence while still growing their own. I think that really opens the door to kind of let them choose the problems that they want to explore um, and hopefully lays a foundation for where they're heading and, and the things they're going to encounter in the, the real world. Christina Ruffini, CBS News. Bringing it back to our local school districts, administrators are working to improve a problem called absenteeism or a student being chronically absent. 10TV's Tara Jabor spoke with two districts about why more students are missing school and what they are doing to get those kids back in the classroom. At Hilliard City School District, they have noticed more students missing class. Uh, in grades six through eight uh, in 2017, it was 3%. And just this past year, it was all the way up to 23%. Stewart says this year they wanted to get ahead of the issue by starting to communicate with parents about their students' attendance. 
Uh, we sent every parent an email showing uh, their students' attendance from a year ago and how their students' attendance co- compares to uh, other students in the same grade. Overall, the district's absenteeism was 18 percent. Stewart calls it a critical problem, but one that they are addressing. For Columbus City Schools, the district's absenteeism has improved over the last two years. In the 21 to 22 school year, they were at 65 percent, and in 22 to 23, 57.8 percent. Reasons vary from um, from transportation to um, homelessness, um, schools. But some of the other, some of the external thing are family dynamics. Pollard says the data shows that those who don't show up are at a big disadvantage. The likelihood of them passing the um, third grade reading guarantee drops, and also the likelihood of them graduating on time drops significantly too as well. This year, they started a new initiative, Strong Start, to get kids back in the classroom. And we started making phone calls early August. We did some phone calls. We did some home visits. Hey, did you know that school starts back August 23rd? Tara Jabor, 10TV News. 60 years since the March on Washington and Dr. Martin Luther King's iconic I Have a Dream speech. August 28th, 1963, the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. A record quarter of a million people descending on the nation's capital from across the country to bear witness to a historic moment. And I think this march will go down as one of the greatest, if not the greatest, uh, demonstrations for freedom and human dignity ever held in the United States. A defining moment in the civil rights movement. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. dreaming aloud of a better life for black Americans, a dream that echoes decades later. What he shared on that day becomes kind of like a measuring uh, rod. We, you know, we can look at where we are today according to what he was saying about the conditions of our society at that time period. A blueprint for change, King's daughter Bernice works to keep in the forefront 60 years later. The new generations may not be aware of it. Uh, And we know that when that happens, when people don't know their history, they're bound to repeat it. History intertwined with racial inequality, from voting rights and racism to disparities in pay and education. All products of an unfair America highlighted in King's speech. I'm sure that many things will happen as a, happen as a result of the march. Uh, certainly the people who attended will go back to their communities and work with bold and grim determination. King's speech helped lay the groundwork to push through laws that guaranteed blacks equal access to the ballot, civil rights, and even equal housing. But like many, Bernice King says she's now concerned that those laws are being threatened and weakened with recent decisions about education and legal issues. The reason a lot of these things happen is because, you know, there seems to be a lag in in vigilance. Uh, My father said it best. He said one of the tragedies still of human history. And of course, he was saying this more than 60 years ago, but it's applicable today. One of the tragedies still of human history is that the children of darkness are often more zealous and determined than the children of light. King says decades later, her father's message still provides hope and a reference point for building communities where injustice comes to an end and love prevails. Part of the reason uh, we had the problems we had in the 50s and 60s, and my f- father said it, is because of, not because of the quote-unquote Ku Klux Klan. It was because of the moderate white individual who saw what was happening 
but refuse to get engaged in any form or fashion. Um, and so I think each person has a role and responsibility to be more conscious and aware uh, of their surroundings, of, of what's happening in our world, and really deciding how they're going to connect to the struggle, the just, humane, equitable, peaceful world. A journey until freedom rings for all. These things, to me, are worth, you know, putting your all into because I'm in the place that I'm in because people fought for me to have some of the rights and privileges that I have. And so how dare I sit back and glory in all of this while other people are still being, you know, deprived. So, um, yeah, I'm going to continue to fight till I can. (laughs) And Bernice King tells 10TV that a major part of that fight includes closing the racial wealth gap. She hopes before the 70th or 80th anniversary of her father's speech that things will look drastically different for job, employment, pay, and generational wealth for all people. And on that note, we thank you for joining us today on Face the State, and we wish you a great week. That's again Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and on the phone with me is Vicki Gregg, who is the clinic manager for Remote Area Medical, or RAM, which is holding a pop-up clinic in Columbus later this month. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Good. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us what RAM is. Uh, RAM um, is a nonprofit that provides uh, free pop-up clinics um, across the United States. Uh, We have medical vision and dental services. In dental, we offer cleanings, fillings, and extractions. We also do dental x-rays as needed. In vision, we do a complete eye exam that includes um, an examination of the blood vessels uh, behind the eye to check for any damage from diabetes or high blood pressure. Uh, Patients are also able to pick out a pair of frames and then we can actually make the glasses on site so the patient can leave with a brand new pair of glasses. If they have a prescription that is stronger than what we carry, then we bring the frames and the prescription back with us to headquarters located here in Tennessee and we send those glasses to a lab, have them made and then mail them directly to the patient. Wow. In medical, we also we do um, general health exams and women's health exams that um, in, that includes a, a pap specimen. Um, and this clinic is offering um, basic lab blood draws, uh, so we can check electrolytes, uh, CBCs, um, A1Cs for the diabetics. And those results will be uh, followed up with the patient after the clinic. And this is going to be, it's free, first come, first serve on Saturday and Sunday, September 23rd and 24th at East High School. Yes, that's correct. And this is amazing. You know, I was looking at your schedule and on the 23rd, you've not only got this pop-up clinic going on in Columbus, you've got one in the state of Georgia and another one in North Carolina. 
I mean, you're a huge organization. You do this all, all over the country. We do. We typically do about 70 um, pop-up clinics throughout the year. In addition to this, we also have um, a telehealth uh, department. Um, we have uh, we do um, remote telehealth appointments, as well as we've got some uh, local clinics in the Knoxville area where we offer telehealth support uh, for patients. When you organize a pop-up clinic in Columbus, I'm assuming then that for weeks ahead of time you're working to get local doctors involved in this or what? Uh, More like months. Months, (laughs) yeah. We like for uh, a community host group to have 12 to 18 months planning time. Uh, We've determined that that leads to a more successful clinic. In Columbus, we actually work with uh, the Ohio State Ram Chapter. Uh, so that is a group of students that have has formed uh, a RAM chapter on campus. And these students actually travel to various clinics and, and volunteer and help to support us. And this group, uh, this will be, I believe it's either the third or fourth clinic in Columbus that has been organized um, with us through the um, RAM chapter. Wow, that's great. Talking with Vicki Gregg, she's the clinic manager for the Remote Area Medical Pop-Up Clinic, or RAM Pop-Up Clinic, which is going on Saturday and Sunday, September 23rd and 24th at East High School. And this starts bright and early, actually even before sunrise. Uh, Tell me a little bit about what goes on on these days. Well, we come in on that Friday, the 22nd. So we will actually set the clinic up on that day. And the parking lot for the patients will open no later than 11.59 p.m. on Friday night. Um, But I strongly recommend if anybody is wanting one of the specialty services, uh, like dental or vision, that they plan on arriving before then. It's not unusual for patients to start arriving in the afternoon. Wow. Uh, between 3 and 5 p.m. Their patients are parked in the order that they arrive, and they are provided uh, with additional um, information for completing a patient profile. Um, We do have uh, parking lot uh, security that will be on site overnight. Once the patients arrive, they need to plan on staying in their cars overnight. So we recommend uh, packing a cooler with drinks, um, snacks, food, uh, bringing any medication that may be needed, along with a pill and a blanket, uh, and just plan on camping out in their cars. Um, The doors open at 6 a.m. Saturday and Sunday morning. We will have um, our parking lot crew going from car to car, Uh, making sure that people are awake, and we text them uh, through a mobile number that's given to us when we're ready for them to come to the front door, much like whenever you um, are on a wait list for a table at a restaurant. Um, We just text them. They come in. um, They go through registration, medical triage, and then we get them to whatever service they are looking for. Wow. It's really, unfortunately, kind of a sad commentary of where we're at with healthcare care in, in some instances in America where 
some folks, this is their only their only shot, maybe, in a long period of time to get something done that needs to be done. It is. It is. Um, our, you know, we look at providing health care to those that are underserved or uninsured, but there are no qualifications uh, to receive services at a RAM clinic. We don't ask uh, for um, insurance information. We don't ask for IDs. Pretty much we have patients that will come from neighboring states uh, if they look on our website and see that if there's a clinic that they can possibly drive to. Wow. So if you've got somebody who, you know, let's say they've, they've got a toothache or a really bad dental situation that needs to be taken care of, but also maybe they have diabetes and vision problems, unfortunately they have to kind of pick one over the other to get treated, right? services simply because we want everybody that comes to get one of the specialty services. Right. So they they need to pick the problem that is the most um, uh, acute. Uh, again, you mentioned a toothache. So they could come in for dental, and medical is available to every patient that comes. There's, there's no cap on medical. So, you know, if they do have diabetes, they would be able to go to medical and get... Um, treatment there if they need prescriptions refilled and then they once they finish either dental or vision they're welcome to come back around to the parking lot and see if there are any uh, tickets left for the other service if they want to try to get whichever service that that they weren't able to get on saturday and then they always have the option of you know coming back sunday morning but there again that means repeating the same process that they went through on friday night so uh, as uh, people get lined up for this and stay overnight in their cars do you kind of keep track of how many are waiting so that you have a, a proper cutoff time so you're not leaving folks in line when time runs out we do we do and we look at the number of, prof- of uh, professionals that we have volunteering each day and we do a calculation on how many patients can be served in either dental or vision. And so we have a cap number. And once that number is reached, the, the parking lot crew will start telling people that that service is no longer available. They can ask for the other service if it's still available. And if both of them are filled to capacity, then the patients, you know, they can stay for medical if they would like, or they can go back home and come back Sunday uh, in order to try to get one of those specialty services. Talking with Vicki Gregg from Remote Area Medical, uh, it's RAM, their pop-up clinic, which is again Saturday and Sunday, September 23rd and 24th at East High School in Columbus. This must really be rewarding work for the folks who are involved in this. It is. I've been involved with RAM uh, for about I don't know, 17 years. Um, I've been with them full-time a little over eight and a half years, and before that I volunteered about eight years um, and worked in the triage area. My background is nursing. Um, We have dedicated volunteers that have come to clinics, and they have learned to run an area of each clinic. We, We refer to them as core volunteers. So they travel with us, and all of their their, their travel costs are, are covered, and the community host group provides lodging 
for all of us. That's really the only thing that we ask for. They don't have to pay to get us to come to a community. Hmm. We just ask for lodging and we ask for food for all the volunteers over the course of the weekend. But we have providers that are so dedicated, and not just providers, general support, that will go to multiple clinics throughout the year just because they are so dedicated to giving back to people that need them. That's fantastic. So in your 17 years involved in this, are you seeing any changes in in the demand or in the needs? Uh, Of course, there, you know, there was a decrease in um, clinics, uh, you know, going, coming out of COVID. Uh, But honestly, we are back up to about the same number of clinics that we were doing pre-COVID. Our founder, Mr. Stan Brock, um, used to say that you could close your eyes and put your finger on a map and guarantee there's a need for services there. Hmm. You know, it's across the United States. And we are there, RAM is there just to provide um, a bridge for that gap as long as we're needed. It's amazing. I mean, you're saving some folks from, you know, undoubtedly trips to the emergency room, even though it may not be a life or death situation. That's where a lot of people resort to when they need help. And It is, especially with dental care. Yeah. Yeah. And you're talking about a, a financial wipeout for the rest of the year when that happens to them. Pretty much. We have a lot of patients that use us as their primary care. Um, you know, they come once a year uh, and they see a medical doctor. They, If, if, if it's a female, they do women's health. Um, if they need um, a cleaning, they're able to receive that service at a clinic. Um if they have a cavity, they're able to get that filling put in. Um, if they need to have their eye exam, you know, annually, they'll come and get their eyes examined and get a new pair of glasses. Um, and then we have other patients that come to uh, several clinics throughout the year. If they're able to drive, um, they will they will come to get what they need. Mm. Talking again with Vicki Gregg from RAM, Remote Area Medical. Uh, and again, their pop-up clinic is Saturday and Sunday, September 23rd and 24th at East High School. Vicki, if folks uh, want to find out more about this, do you have information online where they can access it? Yes, our website is um, ramusa.org. That's ramusa.org. Um, they can go to that location, uh, click on our clinic schedule, and then go to the Columbus Clinic, and it'll bring up more information about the parking lot um, and and things like that. And then they, they can also call headquarters at 865-579-1530. And if they have any specific questions uh, regarding um, services, you know, we're here to answer any questions. Okay. Uh, Vicki Gregg again with RAM. Thanks so much for your time, and we sure appreciate the effort that you make to help folks here locally. All right. Well, thank you, Dave. We're looking forward to coming back to Columbus. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation to the fan. Heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM, Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan.
Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.